Steve Clark and welcome to the very first edition of The Track, a magazine and podcast dedicated to everything Brooklands, from events, book reviews, to interviews and much, much more. So who are we and what as Brooklands members do we do? Tim Morris explains. The Brooklands members are the official support group for Brooklands Museum. Uh, Basically they organise and run uh, that supporters organisation for anyone that's interested in Brooklands itself, uh, past and present. Um, We're to promote the preservation of the the heritage of Brooklands, uh, the motor racing, the aviation, and we do that largely by uh, raising funds through subscriptions and various other activities that we organise throughout the year. So in addition to the subscriptions, which go uh, a long way to funding the museum uh, throughout the year, we we do fundraise for specific projects. Um, good examples of that are the, the Pratt's Pagoda, uh, the Test Hill railings, which you can see when you visit, uh, various other things as well, um, including the Concord bus, the, the Merriweather fire engine, which all exhibits themselves. Uh, the members help towards uh, their restoration. We also uh, produce a uh, magazine ourselves, the Brooklands Bulletin, which keeps the the membership informed of what's going on at Brooklands, as well as having some uh, feature articles on the heritage of the the site itself and the people that inhabited it over the years. Um, we also have our own outreach team, which goes to various shows usually fairly close to the museum that's our main demographic area Um, we give back to the members in a various various ways Um, the the bulletin is a good example that's a bi-monthly full color a four size uh, magazine and we organize a a large range of events uh, for the members um, which have included trips out to uh, European motor museums, uh, weekends away in this country, um, various day runs and um, coach trips out to places of interest. We also arrange uh, an extensive talks programme uh, with the help of some of our partners that include uh, motorcyclist Steve Parrish, uh, motoring journalist and commentator Simon Taylor, and the editor-in-chief of Autocar magazine, uh, Steve Cropley. Um, And also we try to to mix it so it's uh, not just cars, uh, it's motorcycles and uh, aviation as well as um, sometimes general history and general interest talks, uh, all held in the 1907 clubhouse at Brooklands. And uh, in other ways, uh, we we keep in touch with the membership. We've got a fairly extensive social media and we have our own TV channels on uh, Vimeo and on YouTube. And of course, uh, the main benefit is that members don't pay any extra to enter the museum. Uh, They can come uh, any amount of times they'd like uh, during the year. So in a nutshell, um, that's the Brooklyn's members and what we actually do. Um, You can join the members by simply going to brooklandsmembers.co.uk or brooklandsmuseum.com and once you're there you can join online and become a member immediately. We hope to see you soon.
On September 4th, 1940, at 1.24 p.m., the Vickers factory took a direct hit from Luftwaffe bombers, killing 84 workers and injuring over 400 people. The author, Harry Sherrod, takes up the story. Yeah, the Luftwaffe had uh, plenty of intelligence. German aviators and motorists were at Brooklands in the, in the run-up to the, the outbreak of the Second World War. And through the 1930s, although um, Hitler was uh, getting increasingly belligerent, there were near normal relations really between the countries. And so the, the Germans and the Luftwaffe in particular were completely aware of the Vickers and uh, the Hawker factory uh, to the extent that uh, they were able to compile an, an intelligence sheet that they drew up on the site, uh, including uh, the, the, the factories and the other infrastructure. So as far as the uh, defence of the Britain was concerned, yes, we, ha we had what was called the, the Dowding system, named after Air Chief Marshal Dowding, and that involved the installation of what we now know as radar installations all along the south coast and along the, the North Sea coast as well. Back then it was called radio direction finding, or RDF. Uh, the, the word radar was uh, kind of thought up uh, later. So in, in brief, the system was that RDF would pick up radars coming across the English Channel. But what I think a lot of people don't realize about radar or RDF was that it only looked out over sea. And as soon as German radars crossed the coastline and were actually over uh, southern England, uh, radar actually had no role to play. Uh, and it actually fell into the observer core. The first point is that it was a very carefully planned and executed raid specifically targeting the Vickers factory at Brooklands. So there's no question of the Germans coming over, just r roaming across southern England and saying, look, that looks like an interesting target, let's bomb there. Um, it was absolutely planned um, from, the, from the start as a, 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 an attack not just on Brooklyn's, Brooklyn's, but specifically the Vickers factory. So the aircraft they used was the, the Messerschmitt 110, which it was a, a twin seat, a twin engine, primarily used as a fighter, but it could also be put into a light bomber specification. So a group of uh, the, the, the Luftwaffe that specialized in uh, low altitude, high speed bombing uh, were, were equipped with these 110s and they were targeted, there were 14 of them, and they were all briefed at an airbase in northern France that morning that, that their target was going to be a, a Vickers factory, and they were given, obviously, all the navigation coordinates and so forth um, to get there. But in addition to the 14 attackers, there were also a large number of uh, diversionary aircraft. They were all also Messerschmitt 110s, and the total force that took off from that northern France was, was about 100 in fact, and they all um, obviously headed towards the south coast. They're picked up by radar and RAF fighter squadrons were scrambled and that various dogfights took place and a number of the 110s were shot down. But the actual raiding party, they only lost one aircraft out of the 14. The other 13 were, were unscathed and they headed off in, at low altitude in uh, the direction of Brooklyn's. So the, uh, the 13 raiders arrived at Brooklands at low altitude, um, came out of the sun, and they were um, completely undetected. Uh, the guns that were uh, installed at Brooklands, including the Home Guard and the, the guns on the uh, roof of Vickers factory, but unfortunately none of them were actually able to brought to bear on the radars because the whole thing just happened so quickly. So they'd set off from northern France kind of late morning. I don't think they planned it necessarily in this precise way as, as how it turned out. I don't think they could have done really, but they'd set off from France late morning. 
So when they arrived at Brooklands, it was the, the, the end of lunchtime and the Vickers factory operated a, a clocking in and clocking out system. And uh, many of the employees had stayed outside to kind of gather as much of the late summer sunshine as they could. But many of the employees were queuing in the area where there was the, the, the clocking in mechanism to, uh, to clock back in after their, their, their lunch break. And by, by fluke, by a pretty um, disastrous fluke, uh, one of the bombs dropped by one of the 110s uh, burst through the, the factory uh, uh, roof and it actually exploded quite near the, the clocking in system and that rather tragically there was a large concentration of workers in that area and of course a lot of them were obviously killed um, by, by that explosion. Uh, there was n nearly 90 workers were, were, were killed by the explosion and uh, about 400 were, were, were injured. Yeah, the, um, the machine shop and the wing shop and the repair hangar were, were all damaged. Superficially, you say, my goodness, the place was absolutely destroyed. Um, and certainly it does look like a, a scene of absolute devastation with all the, the glass. There was a glass roof element to it and everything and all of that smashed up. So it does look terrible. Um, but it is, or there really is two different things. Destroying the fabric of a, of a, of a factory is you know, relatively easy by, by dropping some bombs on it. But unless you're scoring direct hits inside the factory, you're not necessarily doing an awful lot of damage to the actual aircraft production machinery. Uh, and the reality is that the, none of the bombs really did this damage uh, any of that, that essential machinery uh, within the factory. So there was a, obviously a massive um, clearing up operation that went on uh, to, to clear up all, all, of, all of that uh, uh, damage to the, the, the fabric. But the uh, uh, Brooklyn staff quickly realized that in actual fact, the main machinery hadn't been damaged and they were able to get everything up and running again within uh, really not, not, not that many days. Busters March, of course, uh, written by Eric Coates for the film of the same name in 1955. Um, not only does the Dam Busters have a, a connection with Brooklyn through uh, Barnes Wallace, of course, um, but that performance was by Billy Cotton and his band. Uh, Billy, uh, as well as being a uh, 
very well-known band leader from the 1950s and 60s on radio and TV, actually came out of the, the dance band craze from the 1920s. And he was also uh, a well-known footballer and a racing driver. And of course, he drove many times at Brooklands. The names of Lady Mary Heath and Amy Johnson are familiar female pilots in the early days of aviation. Well, today we meet the modern day equivalent. I spoke to Tracy Curtis Taylor in the first few weeks of lockdown. Tell us where you've been and where you've been flying. Well, the flying side of things really carried on once we got to Sydney uh, in the new year of 2016. We went on, we shipped the Stearman out to America because we wanted to really take it around the world. And to go to America was a kind of homecoming for the Stearman, which of course is a, an American aeroplane. Boeing built thousands of these as basic trainers for World War II. So I wanted to fly across America uh, really to sort of invoke the, the mail, the, the old mail run, because that was another huge source of interest to me. And en route, of course, we stopped up at Wichita, where the Stearman was built in 1942. So America was, was a big one. But of course, I had to have two, two cracks at America, because on the first attempt in the May of 2016, I actually crashed in the Arizona desert, just taking off out of, of, uh, of Winslow in Arizona. And uh, we had a partial engine failure due to fuel contamination. And literally on takeoff, shortly after takeoff, the engine lost about 300 RPM of power, which was enough to stop it flying. So I just put the nose down and, and landed in the desert. And of course, it somersaulted spectacularly, practically wrecked the aeroplane. Um, but Awald and I, um, my, my crew and I got out safely. And of course we filmed the whole thing. We had a film crew with us. They'd been flying with us the whole day through the Grand Canyon, through Lake Powell and Monument Valley. And this was just the last positioning flight of the day down to Phoenix. So it was an extraordinary thing to happen. I then had the wreck airlifted out of America and back to Europe where Awold and his team at 3G Classic Aviation in Austria-Hungary rebuilt the Stearman. I then took it back to America in 2017 and reflew it. So back to Santa Monica, right across America from coast to coast with a fantastic finale in New York at Republic Airfield on Long Island. So amazing. So the crash in the desert, did it do a great deal of damage or was it superficial? No, it was, it was huge damage. The, the aeroplane was virtually a write-off. I mean, you know, when I hit the ground and I hit it quite fast at about, I don't know, 70 knots, um, you know, the aeroplane hit and then sort of uh, just kind of roared forwards about 20 yards. But I'd also struck a bush on the right-hand part of the undercarriage and that ripped the right-hand wheel off and put me into a cartwheel and I went through a full somersault, destroyed the wings in the process. I mean the whole superstructure of the wings, you know, it's all wood and fabric that absorbed the energy of the crash and really protected the, the cockpit in the front of it. So the, the cockpit was, was completely untouched and we just stepped out of that. The aeroplane was upright, you know, on, you know landed on its belly mm -hmm. and we just stepped out to all intents and purposes as if we were just getting out normally, but the aeroplane was just destroyed around us. A remarkable escape, I guess you should say. Can't keep an old bird down, Steve. <laughs> we 
spoke quite a while ago about the possibility of a film. Where are we with that? Well, of course, we made one documentary, you know, Nylon Films came on board and, and made a very nice documentary of the Africa flight. It, it was called The Lady Who Flew Africa. Yeah. The Aviatrix. And of course, it was all about Lady Heath's amazing flight of Africa in 1928. And this was this remarkable woman who had been one of our first Olympic athletes. She learns to fly. You know, she's winning then all the air races around Britain. She was she was phenomenally talented. But of course, her finest moment was this solo flight from Cape Town to back to England in 1928. She was the first person, person note, to fly a light aircraft solo from, from, the, from, from the Cape back to England. But of course, history has not remembered her. It's a lost legacy. And part of our motivation was retelling her story, making the film, really through the medium of my flight. Mm. And that was then screened by the BBC and mm. was extremely well received mm. so what we're doing now we're making a sort of global documentary of all the flights and we just finished that before christmas here in london now it's a rough cut and we still need to raise the money to complete the post-production so that's the next challenge but i'm hoping that's going to be released next year and of course we'll then have a book to go with it so this is this is the sort of double the, the double challenge really so that's what i'm very very um preoccupied with right now now i know you've always had a, a fascination with early female pilots is that why you started flying in the first place no it wasn't it wasn't i i don't know what the trigger point for the flying was you know i don't come from an aviation family um, although we're british i was raised the first 10 years of my life was in canada um, but we had nobody in the family flew we were you know, I did not come from a privileged background. I mean, we had a pizza restaurant in the north of England, you know, lived in the rented flat above that. And, you know, there was a flourishing branch of, of the air training cadets at my school, Appleby Grammar School. But of course, you know, women couldn't join that mm -hmm. any more than they could join the Air Force. So it simply never occurred to me to fly in those years. And I had no access to it. I couldn't afford to do it. And there was no way of doing that. I think, you know, the interesting thing is, and this is a direct link to Brooklyn's, it was the film, Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines. I, I honestly think that is the first thing that absolutely captured my imagination. I just loved this gaggle of old flying machines. It was sort of took you back to the start of flying, all the kind of hysteria around it, you know, this desire to fly, the Wright brothers and so forth. Um, so... When I first came to Brooklyn's and I first saw the tower, and of course it takes you right back to the film. So no, so when I started flying, I had my first flying lesson in Canada at the age of 16. So my twin sister and I went back for a summer holiday. And while she went shopping, I had seen a sign at the side of the road advertising introductory flights. And I just said, that's me, $15. And I just went and had a flight. And the poor instructor, he was actually Austrian. He couldn't get rid of me. I mean, I, you know, this, this enthusiastic teenager. And after our initial flight, he ended up taking me with him on a charter flight to Vancouver Island. So I ended up flying with him all afternoon. And that was really the start of it. And, you know, but again, I, I then went on, did my A-levels, worked in London for a couple of years. When I finally emigrated to New Zealand in 1983, that's when I started to learn to fly in earnest. And, and you know, there were, again, New Zealand is a great flying country. It's, it's full of airfields, there are flying clubs, it's accessible and it's affordable. 
and that's where I started. So that, that was the move to, to New Zealand that was so significant. I would never have done that had I remained in England. My interest in the pioneers, I'd obviously heard of, of Amelia Earhart and Amy Johnson when I was really quite young. But it's only when you start flying old aeroplanes. And my interest was very early on. You know, when, when I got my private license, I then bought into syndicates with the New Zealand warbirds. And I had, a, I had for, in, for instance, a share in a World War I replica, an SE-5A, which is a little single-seat fighter. So I used to do quite a lot of flying in that. But it's when you're flying these aeroplanes, the old aeroplanes, that you start getting interested in the people who flew them back in the day, in the 1920s and 30s. Flying was absolutely a, a global craze in the 1920s. You know, once Charles Lindbergh flew the Atlantic, that was, you know, the definitive solo flight. And suddenly, you know, suddenly into the, into the limelight, we have the women of the interwar period. So this was yeah. Lady yeah. Heath flying Africa the year after, the year after Charles Lindbergh. Um, we have we have Amy Johnson, you know, 1930, flying, you know, the, this amazing flight to Australia. And then we have the ones that followed. We have Beryl Markham flying the Atlantic. We have Jean Batten. There was Ellie Beinhorn from Germany. You know, women, there was this flourishing, and it was known as the golden era of aviation. And, and aviation, it was civil aviation. That was when the women really came into their own. And, and that that has become the period of, of, of key interest to me. And, and it's that really that I was trying to evoke with my, with my flights with a view to inspiring this next generation. Because mm. as you know, Steve, there are still few women in aviation. About 5% of commercial pilots are women, 5%. Mm. I mean, the statistics are frankly appalling. Mm. At a time when the industry is crying out for pilots, you know, women need, need to, crack on with this and I that's you know that's what I was trying to do so my my flights weren't just flights this was also a global outreach campaign to visit schools mentoring groups conferences to get to as many women and young girls as possible to say look this is what these amazing women achieved in history and this is an opportunity for you going forward lockdown is forced us all to think and do things differently and here at Brooklyn's we are no exception. Mark Jarman tells us more. Brooklyn's members talks and TV team started 2020 planning the year's talks and events coverage. We expected to deliver in the region of 20 talks and cover 10 events around the museum as well as a number of specials along the way. Our team is now in its sixth year of delivery with over 100 talks and 250 videos under its belt, so we were looking forward to another eventful year. Little did we know what was to come. With the advent of lockdown in March, we had to completely rewrite the script. By the end of the month, we quickly understood the importance of continuing delivery to our members, with the museum closed and with no knowledge of how long this was going to last. We just had to find a way to communicate and along came Zoom. We were able to continue with some of our talks, albeit without a live audience, and record interviews to be transmitted through our Vimeo channel and our SoundCloud podcast channel. And boy, have we had fun. We have produced 23 new pieces of work delivered via Zoom, ranging from 100 years of air traffic control, interviews with authors on book launches about Nikki Lauder and Jochen Rindt. 
We recorded a video in August about a Formula One racing team from the 1960s and 70s called Shadow with Simon Taylor, the well-known motor journalist talking from the office in his apartment in Kensington with the author Pete Lyons talking from his ranch in Southern California. We have interviewed Richard Noble, the holder of two land speed records about his life in the fast lane and dealing with bureaucracy, politics and sponsors in addition to designing vehicles that will travel at a thousand miles per hour. And we've even interviewed Alan Trimble of Brooklyn's radio fame about hospital radio and how it all started. The future's looking bright as we plan a programme of live streams delivered through YouTube to potentially thousands of participants already engaged with our videos, delivered through our YouTube channel, where we can get up to 20,000 plays a month. Brooklyn's Museum is open again on Thursdays, Fridays, and over the weekends, plus bank holidays. Tickets must be booked in advance. Full details of how to be booked and get up-to-date information, go to brooklynsmuseum.com. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.